If you have your Bibles, please open them with me for a preliminary reading of Psalm 29. Though we will be in a number of different passages, I want to read Psalm 29 to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be today as we open God's Word. Listen as I read Psalm 29, then we'll pray and dig in together. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to give birth and strips the forest bare. In all his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray. Lord God, in this time right now, we cry out to you and we just pray that you would be pleased to quiet our hearts and minds and, and give us focus. Lord, I pray that as I open up your word and try to put together a, a few thoughts today from the scriptures, that you would, we would ascribe to you some of the glory that is due to your name. That we would take a glimpse again at the wondrous works of your hand as they unfold, even as we've seen them so recently displayed all around us. And Lord, that we would uh, just be moved with a sense of, of confidence and comfort and love and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want us to look at right now and, and what we're going to look at in this time together is the reality that the scripture teaches that God is sovereign over the storms. Not just figuratively, but also literally the storms. Not just the storms of life, the hard times and the bad times. And He is sovereign over that as well. But we, I want us to begin to, to see certain things that the scriptures lay out. Now those who are reading the McShane Bible reading schedule that we've freely distributed to any and all who would desire it, have been reading through the book of Job. And as you've been reading through the book of Job, and as you get towards the end, as, as little Elihu comes on there, and then Job interacts some, and then God speaks, we have lots of things that really speak to these issues, and I want to consider those today. But let me draw your attention, again, by way of introduction to, those, that, to verse 10 of chapter 29 of Psalms. 29.10, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Also another introductory verse before we spend most of our time in Job would be Psalm 93 verses 2 and 3. Again, listen to these words. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. One more introductory verse. Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7. Psalm 135, verse 6, served as one of the key verses, themes for the conference that I just uh, participated in in Mauritius. It's, it's, it has these words that are so absolutely profound in their scope and statement. Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7. Whatever 
the Lord pleases, He does. In the heaven and on the earth, in the seas, in all the deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes the lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. All of these verses, all of these words, wind, rain, lightning, clouds. I'm hoping these words are somewhat familiar to you this morning. Not only from our lives in general and the weather as it comes and goes, but practically speaking, in these last few weeks, there's been some serious storms. I know because the storms caused me to be stranded overnight in the Dallas airport. As I reached back and was hoping to get home, there I am being told it's delayed. It's delayed further. It's delayed until the finally at the last moment they said, it's canceled. And it, not knowing as they would, is it going to clear? Is it not, not going to clear? Watching in those circumstances the angst and anxiety of all of the people in the airport. What's going to happen? This and that. Watching this one rather large fellow shout at this poor little lady working behind the counter as if somehow she could stop the rain. You know, I thought, come, please, it doesn't make sense. And I'm watching her with desperation say, I, I can't control the weather, and I'm also not a weatherman to tell you if it's going to open up or not going to open up. Well, who can give me answers? Who can give me? Who can tell me? Here's the reality. No one can tell you. Uh, on and on and on, all that the weathermen say is to a large extent speculative. Which is why they often say there is a 30%, 60% chance of rain. Is that the question we have? Our question isn't what's the percent chance. Our question is, is it going to rain or not? We're wanting yes or no. Tell me what's going to happen. But they cannot. Now they're bold enough these days at times to even say a 100% chance. And shockingly, from time to time, 100% chance doesn't actually precipitate. It doesn't rain. Because they don't know. But what we're going to just glory in a little bit today is these things are not just Natural disasters and natural activities. You know, traditionally, even insurance companies would call these things acts of God. They were right. They were absolutely right when they would make those statements. And we need to reclaim that idea. The, the tendency is to begin to think that somehow uh, this is just the weather patterns. This is just a cold front coming in or a hot front or the convergence of two fronts and and this is what's causing all of these things and somehow we come up with these theories and ideas that have God over yonder doing who knows what while nature is carrying on its course. Brothers and sisters, this is not reality. The reality is that God is absolutely sovereign in the storms. I'm going to go even further than that. God is sovereign specifically over every single droplet of water that falls. Where it falls. How much it falls. Whether or not it does fall. Because the atmosphere is full of droplets of water. I want us to begin to see that together as we turn our attention to the book of Job. We're going to be primarily in three chapters in the book of Job. That would be 26, 36, and 37, as you probably would have guessed. Chapter 26, verse 7. I want to begin there with a little reading. First thought I want us to notice as we begin to unfold this is we're looking at our God who is not only the creator of all that is, he is the commander of all. Of all that is and will ever be. 
creator and commander. Not just initiator, not the God of the deists who made everything and wound it up and walked away and is just looking to see how it's all going to work out. That's not what the scriptures teach. And look with me in Job chapter 26, verse 7 and following. Speaking of God, Elihu here begins to speak and he says this. Let Let me go ahead and get there as well with you. No, this is, this is Job replying to some of his friends, speaking of God. It says, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in thick clouds and the clouds could not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon. Uh, what we're beginning to recognize is this. Here are these events Clouds covering up so that we can't see the moon. Waters being caught up into and held by clouds not yet releasing their rain. Whatever stories as to how that's happening, why that's happening, all of those details, what Job is stating here is God is the one who's doing all of these things. God is the one who's putting the water, binding it up in the clouds. God is the one who stretched out the north and made the earth. He's the one who created all things. Verse 12 says, by his power, he stilled the sea. Verse 13, by his wind, the heavens were made fair. So you have God controlling the wind, God controlling the clouds, God controlling uh, the waters, uh, the locations of the clouds, how much moisture is in them. I'm going to need you to kind of keep your fingers over in Job, between Job 26 and Job 36, so you can go back and forth here to see these themes as they go together. 36.32 says this, He covers his hand with lightning and commands it to strike the mark so when lightning falls and lightning can be quite powerful and quite strong and some of us have seen some amazing lightning storms last year when i was driving darshani back from the west coast there were storms going on all over the place and as we headed down through texas and then across it it was a we could watch from left kind of all the way around to the right as these storms just would unload. And we were just sitting there enjoying an amazing light show and knowing that none of it is accidental. Remember, the gods that men have created in their own imaginations, they've often tried to draw from the realities of the true God. They create a multitude of, God, of, of gods and they ascribe to some of them these powers and others of them these powers and others of them these powers because they can't conceive of a God like ours. A God like the true God who has all of these powers. So the Greek notions of a Zeus, a Roman notion, uh, casting lightning bolts. He does not, but the true God does. It's not simply a matter of of static electricity and this happening and wherever it goes, but it is exactly designed by God such that it's stated here even in the language of something striking a target. You might want to think of something like an archer. Draws back that bow with an intention. But here's something just got to put out there other than the stories about old Robin Hood potentially slicing other arrows that are already at the center of the bullseye generally speaking you don't see bullseye 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 all day long and nothing but that there's a tendency of the human element to miss the mark And that's why when they do those events, there's certain points for different locations and they add those things up. And and there's, even within a certain point range, there's a margin. If you're anywhere within that, that margin, you get those points. With God, it's not even like that. 
there's no margin of error necessary. He strikes it exactly where he wants to strike it, whether it would be precisely to the tip of a pin drop or whether it should be the size of a car or a crater, none of it is accidental. And it's just so wonderful the way the scriptures lay out and describe this. Again, in chapter 37, verse 3, it says it this way. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go. And his lightning to the corners of the earth. It goes on in verse 6 to say, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. So, when it snows, why does it snow? The scriptures answer, because God said, snow. When it rains, why does it rain? Because God said, rain. It is as clear as that. He commands everything as he pleases. Verse 10 says this of chapter 37. Uh, By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. Verse 11, he loads the thick clouds with moisture. If you were to go down with me, yeah, why not? Job 38, one more chapter further. It says this in verse 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you do that? I mean, there there are people who for all intents and purposes have developed all kinds of attempts to make it rain. We know stories about people lighting a little bonfire, whatever they could do, a little dance, a little shimmy, to see if somehow they can get the rain to come. I ask you, does that cause the rain? No. So what do they got to do? Dance a little harder? Beat the drums a little louder? Wake up the gods? What, what, no. None of those things are in control. God is absolutely in every detail commanding every aspect of it. You can't have any personal effect on it. Verse 35, can you send forth lightning that they may say to you, here we are. Speaking of wind, clouds, lightning as his servants using the beautiful poetic language of what can we do for you? Go and do this. And they do it completing what they will at his commands. Uh, Psalm 107 says this in verse 25. For he commands and raised the stormy wind which lifted the waves of the sea. Verse 29 of Psalm 107. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea hushed. If I were to go through passages with you, if I were to, since I will, you would see sections, for example, out of Jonah, where it says in Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea. Uh, It tells us in Exodus chapter 10, regarding the locusts who were brought in, that an east wind blew and brought in all of the locusts, and then... Later, an east wind, uh, a a southwest wind blew, blowing them back out of there. The same thing in Exodus 14. An east wind drove back and divided the path of the sea. God commanding the wind, God working everything exactly as he has commanded. God is not simply the creator, but the commander. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, God's word says this, I Form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. It's important to know that because we live in a world where people will like to say, 
well, all the good things that work out well and make us happy and comfortable, yeah, God's in control of those things. But the bad things, like when we lose our houses and we lose our cars, well, that's the devil's work. Well, really? Whether it is calamity or whether it is blessing, whether there is harvest or whether there is drought, whether there is a little drizzle or an overwhelming flood, I proffer this to you. He is the Lord who does all these things. It says this in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Let's not play this game that is so prevalent in the world where there are supposedly two gods. The good God, who's the stronger one, and the lesser God, the devil, who's a little bit weaker, and he's eventually going to lose. Again, recently I was stating we we confuse the notion. Satan could not, even as we consider the book of Job, what could he do to Job? nothing he even complains to God yeah the reason why he's following you and worshiping you is because I can't touch him you're blessing everything that he has you put a head of hedge of protection around him I can't do anything let me have Adam and then he will curse you and so what does God say all right you can have at all of his stuff and all of his things and all of his family but you cannot touch him Now, if the devil tried at that point to touch him, could he succeed? No. Then the devil says, well, the only reason he hasn't uh, complained yet and turned against you is because you wouldn't let me touch him. Let me touch him skin for skin, and then he will surely curse you. And God says, all right, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. You realize the devil can't touch a thing. He can't do a thing without God's permission. You know, the good old saying is the devil is nothing but a junkyard dog on a chain. He can't do a thing he, beyond that chain. And that chain is bound and he can't, he can't go anywhere that he's not allowed to go. He's limited and constrained. It's, it, in our experiences, in our wars and in our battles, certain certain. When the war takes place, there will be a lot of battles and a lot of skirmishes along the way. And it's not uncommon, if we go back to the Civil War or other wars, for, um, well, this battle was won by this army, and then this battle was won by this one. And, and, and generally speaking, the one that wins the war is the one that's won the most, or particularly the biggest battles, right? But when the war is all said and done, you've got these different wins and losses. Not so with history. The reality is this. When all is said and done in the battle between God and the enemy, there will not be a single battle that the devil ever won. God doesn't simply end up winning the war. He wins every single battle. Even when the devil thinks he's won the battle he hasn't see the devil thought he was winning that battle as Jesus Christ was taken as lies were spread against him false witnesses he's handed over to Pilate he's set aside to be crucified he's put up there on the cross and here is the devil thinking I have defeated the son of God I I couldn't get him in the days of the temptation but I've got all those around him to run turn away turn against and the son of God is being crucified I have won And what does the scripture tell us in Acts chapter 2? The sinful men who were involved in that at the behest of the enemy, they did exactly what God's hand had predetermined and purposed to take place. The very act where the devil thought 
he was securing a victory in battle was the historical declaration of the death knell of his defeat. He served God's purpose in the Lamb of God, the Son of God, being slain for the redemption of all his own, giving victory over death, victory over the grave, victory over fear, victory over sin. Here the devil thought he was achieving victory. And what did he find out? It was a day of glorious triumph over the powers of darkness. Oh my. So everything he does actually works against him. Everything that he might think is a victory is actually only serving God's fulfilling purposes. So noting this, we live in a world where God is the creator and the commander. I want to take a little bit of moment and, and, and also see something related to our sovereign and science. A lot of people like to think that science and faith are two completely different things. They are not two completely different things. And what's beautiful when you really look at it is true science so accords with true faith in the true God. It really does. Uh, much of, if not all, of other scientific theories and practices and beliefs require so much more faith. I mean, you, you tell me what, what requires more faith. Uh, a powerful, intelligent God created all of the beauty, the order, the structure, and the organisms that we see. With his wisdom, he brought forth this complexity. Does that take a lot of faith or this? There was an explosion and uh, all this happened. You know? How many times are you going to show up somewhere and there's a, there's a beautiful palace there? You know, the Taj Mahal. How did that get there? Well, you see, there was an explosion. Is, is that going to ever work? <laughs> an explosion does not put together a beautiful building, does it? What does an explosion generally do? It might destroy the building, but it's not, not going to put it together. And, and as complex and as ornate and as designed and well-developed as the Taj Mahal is, it is not even fractionally significant and complex compared to the vast array of organisms and life that exist. It's just ridiculous. They would say, uh, we say wisdom has created intelligence. They say, uncreated cosmic dust just came together and exploded and all of this kind of just happened. Well, where did that dust come from? Uh, it just was. They mock us because we speak of an uncreated God who has no beginning. He is eternal, self-existent, uncreated. Well, that's just crazy nonsense. Well, what do you believe? Well, there was a big bang. Well, what exactly exploded? Well, where'd the dynamite come from? What, well, um, matter. All right, well, where, where'd this matter come from? Well, it just, it just was. Uncreated? Well, I don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> you know, because in the end, every, every, there, it requires more faith to believe that absolute nonsense and seeming nothingness exploded and built all of these things. I mean, it, it just takes, uh, I mean, not just a leap of faith. I mean, just a full fall off a cliff in order to hold on to that kind of crazy nonsense. Uh, but I want to, so I want to look at this. Look what it says in 26, Job 26. I mean, there are certain things that when you look at it, it it's, it's beautiful because you might look at these passages and think, oh, it's so, it's so wonderful and it's so pro poetic. But it's not merely poetic. There are things in there that so accord with what we now know and now see, we're going to have to scratch our heads and say, oh my. Because these things are being said. Uh, you've got to know this. 
before there were any cosmonauts or astronauts, before there were any Hubble telescopes, before there were any satellites, before there were any airplanes, before anybody was floating up in the sky. These things were said even before they developed flat earth theories. Okay? Job is most likely the earliest book that we have. Date unknown. So we'll simply say this, very, very old. Listen to what it says. He's, verse 7 again. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. So it speaks of the earth as floating, hanging in the atmosphere. Not sitting on anything, but suspended in space. Well, how would Job know that? Come on. Was Job the first astronaut, do you think? Now, it doesn't give a lot of details here, but it, it, it's, it's something that was quickly jettisoned when people were convinced of their intelligence. Well, the earth sits on this, it's flat. If you go to the end, you'll fall off it. And all kinds of ideas that the earth would somehow be simply suspended and hanging in nothing. Well, that just seems crazy. Until you fly out into space and look back and what's it doing? There it is, floating there, suspended in space, held up by nothing. Look what it says in verse 10. Oh my, it says this. He inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Now this is a, this is a very interesting thing to note because I had the privilege very recently or discomfort very recently of flying back here. One of the things that you can do while flying, they get this little screen in front of you and you can choose map my journey and it will go to the earth and it will uh, sometimes zoom in and sometimes zoom out on your flight and on your journey. You can see the whole earth at times and then you're right where you're at at other times. When it zoomed out and was showing the whole earth, you know what it also was showing? There was this circle drawn across the waters on the face of the earth indicating the change between light and darkness and I'm sitting there having recently read this in Job and looking at this and saying here is this perfect circle inscribed on the surface across the waters of the earth exactly as the scriptures say wait a circle. How did, how did Job know that the earth was a sphere? Again, was he the first astronaut? And hopefully you keep saying, no. Here's the reality. There's no way for him to know this. And, and following that, did any, did any scientists following Job's uh, revealed wisdom here come up with these kinds of theories? Or when men were left to themselves, did they go a completely different direction? So when you see these kinds of inspired things in the scriptures that predate the supposed scientific method and yet lay it out in ways that are so faithful to what we've now finally discovered, you just have to sit back and scratch your head and say, it seems like maybe the God who made these things revealed them to Job. Because maybe the only one who knew how he made it is the one who made it. Indeed. Look with me also further. Not only did we see that the earth was hung on nothing, that like, light encircles. The, the phrase there is prescribed or drawn the circle around the earth. Now also, look what it says um, Let's go down to go up to uh, 
chapter 36, verse 27. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill in mist, in rain. Then also verse 29, uh, no, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilions? I mean, here is again an amazing picture. This is before all of the modernity that we have now. Okay, we all know, hopefully, or at least have some vague recollection that 70% of the earth's surface is covered by water, right? And that, uh, that the sky is full of water droplets. Even the places we don't see clouds are, have water droplets. And then there are also clouds that gather together. How do those water droplets get there? They are drawn up uh, some of you might remember the days of your schooling where you would hear phrases such as evaporation condensation precipitation right where uh, like mist water goes up sometimes in small droplets that's not seen in the air there's a, a condensation that takes place often in the forms of clouds and then the precipitation it comes down as rain and this cycle goes on and on and over and over and over again well here again the scriptures are indicating that he is the one who draws the droplets up like mist uh, setting forth the notions of evaporation that are part of God's process of the water cycle even before those things have been thoroughly searched out as they supposedly have been today. I was doing a little bit of uh, fun research. Um, There is uh, something called the USGS, United States Geological Survey, part of the U.S., um, what is it, Internal Department of Interior. Uh, They are we're doing some investigation and speaking related to the water cycle and and there were just some very interesting things as as they were considering the nature of clouds they said have you ever considered how it is that clouds even stay in the air and how they even form and if you were to take a cloud that was one kilometer cubed which i mean we don't think in terms of kilometers so i wonder if i've got the rest of the numbers here for us yeah 0.62 0.62 miles cubed. All right, a, a big cloud, but not not super big because you can see quite a bit of the sky. How much would that cloud weigh? All right, let me give you the rest of the data. Blah 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 blah. The end of it is that cloud would probably weigh approximately 1.1 million pounds. So when Chicken Little says the sky is falling, you better run, people. (laughs) 1.1 million pound cloud coming your way. (laughs) You're done. Well, I ask you this question. How does something that weighs 1.1 million pounds float? Don't say helium. Because helium's not involved. You know, there are all of these remarkable complexities related to density and, and such. A, but when you begin to think of it, it all seems to defy our, our senses because we would think, no, the density of a cloud must be more than that around it because we could see the cloud. What we see is more dense than what we can't see, right? Well, don't believe what you see. Because it's more complex than that. One of the interesting things in this geological survey is uh, he speaks of, one of the authors there speaks of looking up and seeing a single cloud in the sky. And he began to ask himself this question. Why is that cloud there? Why is there just one cloud in the sky? Why is there not another one next to it, another one around it, one above it? Why is there just that one cloud in the sky? What is the special circumstances in that particular location as to why there's a cloud there 
and not somewhere else in the sky? And let me read to you his answer. The answer is, I don't know. One of uh, our close friends and one of the early elders in the church in Mauritius is a meteorologist. That is his career. He studies these things not only as a job but as a passion. And he said, it is astounding how little we know with regard to uh, cloud formations. I mean, we have all these kind of speculations, but then we make these same measurements and we find them in the atmosphere and, it, and we don't find what we're expecting to find. And we have all of these different models and, and they don't work themselves out. I mean, for example, still now in chapter 37, verse 12, listen to what God's word says. Really, uh, beginning in verse nine, from its chambers come the whirlwind, then down to verse 12, they turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. So here it's now talking about these big storm systems. And how does it describe these storm systems? They turn around and around and around. Now how do they know that? Did Job have access to Doppler radar? He did not. Could he simply look it up on his smartphone exactly what the weather was? No, the only way to know, and to, we, we've been, begun to see now how cyclones and hurricanes work when you have those pictures from above. They're pretty beautiful and majestic, aren't they? To look down and see those amazing storms spiraling like some kind of a, a universe or some, some sort of a galaxy, right? Well, these th here again, the scriptures are describing these things in detail before anyone even has a clear way of assessing them. But they have studied and watched these things for years. They have all of these details based on water temperature, ocean temperature, uh, barometric pressure. There's so many details involved. And yet here comes these cyclones, or what we call here hurricanes, moving towards Mauritius. And we've been in Mauritius when it was hit by a cyclone. They are amazing. The power of God's hand displayed in those things is shocking. Taking, uh, taking trees and just throwing them to the ground, tearing roofs off houses, amazing power. But when it, these things come every year in that, in that area and, and they begin, here's the, here's the nation on a map and all of a sudden up here, there's a hurricane, a cyclone. And the weather begins to, stations begin to give warnings. There's a cyclone this distance. And they begin to plot its direction. In about 12 hours, it'll be here. In about 24 hours, it'll be there. And they'll, they'll plot its direction. When they revise it 12 hours later, they plot its direction a different way. Half the time, they've plotted it to go this way, and it goes this way. They, and they have all these models, they have all of these tests, they have all of these things. And I, and I asked him, I said, Prem, why is it that you're wrong? <laughs> like, pretty much always. You know, instead of like, rarely with, with how that storm is going to move. He said, you know, we have, there's, there's so many complex algorithms related to these models based off of all the experiences we've ever had with storms. But in the end, we don't know why they move where they move. <laughs> we think it's this and we measure those things and we build our models based on that and then it goes a different direction. And we think it's this and it goes a different direction. In the end, it, it, it seems like it's not controlled by any of the practical factors that we measure and rate. That there's something else controlling it. Is it really? That's not a surprise. We know who's controlling it. And, and he's able to, in the midst of this, uh, step back and, and see God's hand in all of it. So just in a simple way, we see that so much of what scientists have discovered, we might say, in these last couple centuries, were already revealed to Job 
so long before. Moving on from the idea of the sovereign and science, I want us to look at the potentate and purpose. Potentate means the one who has absolute power to do what he wants. And as he has that power, God is not a God who simply has that power, but he's the God who exercises that power. Remember, 135 verse 6, the Lord does as he pleases. And that's true at all times and in all places. And I want us to just see a couple of things related to this, that what God does, he does not do accidentally. Now, first part of the challenge is this, chapter 37, verse 5. And I know I'm jumping around a little bit, please forgive me for that, but I'm trying to stay thematic with this and pull these out. In verse uh, 5 of chapter 37, it says this, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend which is exactly what my friend Prem's conclusion has come to. We just don't know. (laughs) Exactly what this writer for the USGS said regarding clouds, I don't know. God does great things that we can't comprehend. Now, he also does great things that he enables us to comprehend. The whole gamut of those things are there, but it goes well beyond the realm of our comprehension. And, and so the, we, have, we have that limit of not knowing, but look also with, what, with me at what it says in chapter 36, verse 31. For by these, this would be the storms and the lightning and the wind and all these things that he, he is bringing on the earth. For by these, He judges peoples. And he gives food in abundance. So the same source, rain (laughs) and storms, God uses at different times and different places to accomplish different purposes. Isn't that right? I mean, God has used floods at times to bring judgment. He used rains at time to bring necessary food to fill the earth. Oh, one other thing that the USGS fellow said that I found interesting. He said that if we were to take all of the atmospheric water that exists and bring it down, it would cover the entire face of the globe, including all mountains. I thought that's interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. Because that's happened when God used the waters in judgment against men. Not only do we, go also with me if you would, and uh, see in chapter 37. Verse 13. Again, God bringing these storms and they come down on the habitable world, whether for correction, right? Whether they're really literally there, the word is whether for a rod, a rod for discipline, for correction, for punishment, uh, or for his land to provide the necessary water for nourishment and growth, or for love, chesed, to meet his people's needs, to comfort and refresh them. He causes it to happen. So when it comes in heavy measures like a rod, when it comes in different measures, every storm, every location it happens in, it all has purpose. Well, you might ask this question. So the recent storms that we've just experienced, what is the purpose? Well, I'm sure you can gather a bunch of people who would say, judgment, judgment is happening. But, and it may be, I can't say it's not, but I would, what I would say this, what he does, we may not comprehend. All I can say is this, he has a purpose and we can be comforted in that. 
Nothing is destroyed that he didn't want removed. But some, some good believers lost property. I, I can't disagree with that. Well, why? I don't know. But I could show you believers in the New Testament who lost property who lost homes, who lost families, who were imprisoned for their faith. Uh, uh, I don't know all of the mysteries of God, and I don't need to, because I know this. God always works with purpose. God's power is always in perfect accord with his purposes. And all of his purposes are after the counsel of his will, according to what pleases him. And so I can sit back and say, it, it should be able to say in the worst of scenarios, standing there at 12 o'clock midnight in the airport in Dallas, after already two days of travel with no sleep, coming from Mauritius to India and India across, and think, why do I have to now stay the night in the airport here in Dallas? Why? I could say that, right? I was tempted to. But I'd already been reading Job. <laughs> you know, and so you know what I did? I looked around at all of the people stressing and all the people fretting and all of the people upset. And I said, it's all right. Apparently, what I thought was the best plan for me to be home and in bed <laughs> and see my family is not God's design. And so I'm going to be here tonight. Well, what purpose will that serve? I don't know. Maybe a little extra peace in my home for another day? No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I could be a challenge. No. Well, I don't know what, what God is doing. I don't know any of those details. What I do know is God is doing it. And so I just sit back, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm watching this, that, this that, that big fellow threatening and what's your name and taking their names down and, and just, you know, almost even moving the table with his body in, in, in violence. I'm watching this other uh, young lady fretting, you know, ha, ha, because she has a, her wedding she needs to get to, you know, and I mean, sympathizing to a degree and, and, uh, and thinking, okay, Let's see, okay, you're not supposed to get married, and, you know, <laughs> no, I don't know what the purposes are. I, I can't make those final decisions, but I know this. It's in God's hands. I'll tell you, I wouldn't have always necessarily done that. I was able to sit there that night and, I, you know, just, just watch all of the different reactions of the people and just have perfect peace and say, all right, yeah, I'm going to be miserable, but that's, that's just me. This isn't all about me. There's all, a lot of other people affected by these things, and I don't know what God is doing, but I know God's doing it. So I'm sitting back, and I'm enjoying the ride. The last, uh, really, and some concluding thoughts in this is, all right, so if, if God is the creator and the commander, God is the sovereign over all science, God is the potentate with purpose and everything, what does that mean to me? But one, like I was just saying, we can just sit back and with, be fully confident. God's in control. God's doing what he wants. But more than that, not just only sit back and, and, and be, say God is great, God is confident, but I want to remind you of what it said in one of the earlier Psalms. Mightier than the thunders of, the, of many waters and than the waves, the Lord on high is mighty. In Job 26, and I want you to see this one, so look in Job 26, verse 14. Again, as it's speaking of those powerful storms and the stilling of the water and these things that God is doing, Job 26, verse 14 says this, Behold, these are but the outskirts, the fringes, the the." outer extremities of his ways and how small a whisper do we hear of him these powerful devastating storms they're just a whisper of the power of God and then it goes on to say but the thunder of his power who can understand if these things 
that ultimately, as the scriptures say here, in Job 37, verse 7, it says this, with these storms, he seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. They can't do anything. When the cyclone comes, when the storms come, men find themselves utterly helpless. We can't stop it. There's nothing that the government can do. They can't send up anything to stop the storm, to stop the wind, to stop the rain. When it's coming, it's coming, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to stop it. And uh, when, when you begin to understand that, it ends up being so humbling because God is absolutely in control of these things. How powerful is he? How mighty is he that all of these things that, that tear down buildings, these earthquakes that devastate places, all uh, these tsunamis that take place, and we see that what the, these, uh, the absolutely hopelessness of man in the face of these mighty disasters, and that's just a whisper of God's power. So that we sit back and say, but his real might, who can understand it? And we just sit back and we're in awe. That's why it says things like this at the top of, uh, in Job 36, verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? So what? God is the one who's in power and he's doing all the things. And it even then goes on to say this. And who dares question him? You can't question him. He does what's right and he's powerful and this should be the result of it. Verse 26. God is great. Behold, God is great. Oh, verse 24 really. Job 36, 24. Remember to extol his work he did these things in order that we might know it he has revealed his wondrous ways in order that we might think on them and be astounded and worship we should wonder at his wondrous works we should magnify him in his might we should praise him in his power we should be humbled before the manifestation of his hand and we should worship him and just noting this as powerful as this is, and as undeniable as this is, Jesus even manifests some of these powers himself, didn't he? He walked on water. The storm is, is so violent that the di disciples are saying, we're gonna die, don't you care that we're perishing? What does Jesus do? He stands up, boom, and he rebukes the wind and the rain and, and is utter stillness. But God's not just sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over death so that Jesus could give up his life. No one took it from him. He gave it up willingly and he could take it up again. <laughs> I mean, when we begin to consider the scope of the God that we worship, it's magnificent. The glory of him, the praise of him. And so it, just in this time where we, where we see it, it, all these storms going on and all these events that are taking place, uh, and, and things in chaos. And none of this is meant to belittle the miseries that people are facing. I mean, genuine miseries that our hearts should go out for them. Our hands, if possible, should stretch out and, and help wherever possible. We come alongside of them. It may be, I don't know what God's purpose is. It might be that through our coming alongside and helping them that God might use us in their lives as, as, as an encouragement in their faith or as a, in a hearing of the gospel and a directing of their hearts and minds to worship. I don't know. So the reality that God is in control of all things doesn't cause us to sit back and do nothing it actually causes us to give him glory in everything and to seek to give him praise and honor and recognition in everything that is taking place so when we consider who is sovereign over the storms i mean we we could make it figurative and uh, if we wanted to do we have problems in life yes do we have afflictions and persecutions, dangers from within, dangers without? Yes. Who's sovereign over those things? God is. 
we're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verse 13, that no trial or temptation has come upon you, but is common to man. And in that, God will either provide strength or he will provide escape and a way of endurance. So God is absolutely in all things so that no matter what comes in our lives, where should we look? We don't have to look into the, uh, into the storm and be frightened. We don't, we don't have to look at ourselves and say, I can't do it. We can look to him and say, he works all things after the purpose of his will. And he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I entrust myself to God. I look to him because he loves me. And everything accords with his purpose, whether it is for a rod, whether it is for the land, or whether it is for love. Whatever is needed, God does as he pleases. And may we say, God, here I am. Do as you please with me. Lord, just thank you that we could spend the time considering your word and considering your power today. We thank you for books like Job that reveal these kind of things that really move our hearts and minds to worship. Even as we come now uh, to consider and, and take together the Lord's Supper to remember that son that you did send that victory and surety and salvation that he did accomplish, when we begin to think something of uh, the might of his power and person and the significance of what it means that all authority has been handed over to him, the reality that he is the one who will be coming to judge the living and the dead, uh, all of these, these, these great truths, Lord, we pray that we would, we would take them up just in our own hearts and minds and, and uh, truly worship you in the midst of all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.